Let's turn in our Bibles to Esther chapter 1. Like I said, we are starting a new sermon series this morning. And before we get into the book of Esther, I know that many of you will remember, you're going to remember a popular radio host who his career spanned from the mid-20th century into the early the early parts of the 21st century, his, his career spanned for decades where he broadcasted on the radio short segments um, that aired multiple times a week. And it's said that, um, that his segments that aired on the radio sometimes reached as many as 24 million listeners. 24 million listeners tuned in to hear his stories, tuned in to hear his voice. And that's quite a following, isn't it? That's quite an audience. That's quite an impact and an influence. And, and I know that, you know, Josh and I, we get up here and we're preaching these sermons week after week and we've begun recording these sermons. And we put them on iTunes and we put them in the Google Play Store. And we're trying to reach that rarefied air of 24 million listeners. And I got to tell you, we're almost there, you guys. We had a whopping 36 people listen to our podcasts uh, over the month of December, okay? So we are on our way. You know, I was thinking about it as I, as I was thinking about what 24 million listeners might look like. I reminded myself, I'm not even sure if my mom listens to my sermons. And I joke with you. But a few months ago, many of you were here. I joke that, uh, you know, one man actually passed out rather than listen to Pastor Josh preach. And (laughs) and it's all worked out well. And Bill has a great sense of humor. And I wouldn't say that if I didn't love Bill. But many of you were here for that. We continue to pray for Bill as he's still having some testing done to figure out what happened there. But, you know, God has been faithful and God has been good. And we're doing the best that we can to, to preach his word. But as I kind of come back to that radio host that I was mentioning, you know, his, his whole, his whole business was built around his whole prod, his whole broadcasts were built around the fact that he would share insights into famous people or famous events that many of us would not know otherwise. And you know, you remember Paul Harvey. Right? And you remember his one famous line where he used to say, and now you know the rest of the story. We love those little segments over the years, didn't we? We would love listening to his voice and tuning into his insight because those little tidbits, those little insights into the things that were happening behind the scenes, they remind us that we don't have the full experience, that we don't have a full perspective because we only see things Uh, from our, I guess, our one point of view. And we can only see so far into things. But when we get that little insight into special stories and special events and and people's lives, it reminds us that, that there's a bigger story at play, that there are things that are happening behind the scenes. And it proves that uh, there is more to the story. And so we're going to look at the book of Esther over the next five weeks. And we're going to work through this book. Um, and we're going we're gonna to chew off some big chunks each week. Like next week, I'll be preaching through Esther chapter 2 and 3. And so we're going we're gonna to take off some big chunks over the next five weeks. But I'm hoping that this will be a blessing to you. But the book of Esther is going to teach us one big lesson, maybe more than any other. It's this. It's that God is working a masterpiece out of our mystery. 
There is a mystery in our lives because we, again, only have one point of view. We only have one perspective. And it feels mysterious at times like, what is God doing in my circumstance? What is God doing in my situation? Well, the fact is, is that Esther reminds us that God is working a masterpiece in our mysteries. He rules every detail of history, even though at some times he feels absent. And I'm sure in your life, there have been seasons, there have been days, there have been uh, circumstances where you ask yourself, where is God in all of this? Just last night, we have some very dear friends of, of ours, my wife and I, and uh, they are now grandparents, and they live back in Boise, Idaho, and they were our very best friends for 10 years while we lived there. And they have a daughter-in-law who was in her mid-20s and uh, basically just had a major Um, I believe she had a major stroke just last night in her mid-20s. And they reported to us that uh, the doctors, the neurosurgeons told them that she was brain dead. And they just asked us to pray for them. And my heart broke. This was like at 1030 at night. And my heart just broke for my friends. And I can't can't help but imagine that, that they're asking God right now in this moment, God, what are you doing? God, I can only see what's right in front of me. Where are you in this? Are you still faithful? Are you still good? And luckily, I, I praise God that they are believers and I'm trusting that, they're, that they are going to stay faithful to God and understand his faithfulness to them. But I think every one of us have been in that place in life where we've had to ask God, where are you? Whatever I'm going through, where is your presence? Do you care what I'm struggling through? Are you near? Do you even understand? And so Esther is going to talk to us about how God is present, even when he seems absent. It's been said that Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a, that's a wonderful promise for many of us today, that no matter what we go through, no matter what God allows to come into our lives, that it's all going to work together for the good. It's been said that the book of Esther is kind of a, a story that reflects that truth. The whole story of what happens in this nation, what happens um, to these characters, is kind of a reminder that all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so no matter what the chaos is in our world, no matter what the messiness and the decay of our society is around us, God's heart will always remain attached to his plan and it always remains attached to his people. And through, a, uh, through Esther's amazing story, we're going to find that God is always behind the scenes working out the rest of the story right? Amen. Like we can know, we can trust that even though I don't know what God is trying to do with my friends and, and their daughter-in-law that may not make it through the day, I'm still trusting that God is working out a bigger story in the midst of what seems like maybe um, his absence. And so we're going to talk about how God is working out the rest of the story in the book of Esther. And so throughout this book, we're going to see dozens of examples of what seems like coincidences or things that just so happen to different individuals. And so, for example, it just so happens that our main character in the story is Jewish. It just so happens that she is beautiful beyond comprehension. It just so happens that she catches the eye of a king. And it just so happens that there's a plot to commit genocide of the Jews. It just so happens that our hero of the story gets a rare audience with the king. 
And it just so happens that the king that we're going to talk about this morning, who takes up much of Esther chapter 1, is all about building his own empire. There are all these things that just so happen. They seem coincidental, but when we see the whole narrative of the book of Esther, what we're going to realize is is that God was there every step of the way, and what some call a godless book. Because what we're gonna, what you're gonna hear about and be reminded of over the next several weeks is that nowhere in the scripture, in the book of Esther, I should say, is God's name mentioned, but he has present all throughout what he is working out for the good. And so all these things just so happen, but in the, in chapter one in particular, it just so happens that this king that we're gonna study this morning is obsessed with building his own empire. And men have been building empires from the beginning of time, haven't we? All the way back to the Tower of Babel when, when, when men thought that they could achieve something special and they could, re, they could build this tower that reached to the heavens. From there, from the Tower of Babel that fell, we have the Egyptian Empire. And then we have the Assyrians. And then we have the Babylonians. And then we have the Romans. And we also have the Persians in there as well. And then we also have the Greeks. And we have all of these empires throughout all of history where men rise up to power and they become almost leaders, become godlike. And they're obsessed with building their own empires. And they compete against an invisible empire of God. And these earthly empires, as they grow, as their power and their influence expands, leaders are lulled into a godlike complex and they, they tighten their grip of control. Because when they control, they feel more and more like God. And these earthly empires that build up, inevitably, as they grow, they inevitably lose their way. They lose their way and they begin calling evil good and good evil. And these evil empires, they thumb their nose up at God, and they war against the empire of God. And so trying to manipulate a heaven on earth, many of them, they make hell instead. And so Esther is a story of dueling empires. It's a story of an empire called Persia that is dueling or battling against God's invisible empire. And so in Persia, 2,500 years ago, there's a, there's a king who goes on a power trip and he wants to prove his greatness. He wants to, to prove his power. He wants to prove his godness, if you will. And so in the midst of all of that, debauchery ensues. And we're going to look at that here in just a moment. But I got to just say as like, like a side note, it's a little scary how easily we acclimate to culture, even as believers, as followers of Christ, it's easy sometimes to acclimate to culture, even the, the, the moral decay, even the unholiness of culture, the things that begin to feel normal to us because we're master adapters. You know, it's a slow fade for a nation whose gods become self, become pleasure, and become sexual liberation. Yet, in our society today, as crazy as our society and, and the, the decay of our nation has become, Many of us have simply adapted to it. The things that we never thought we would um, maybe live to see, the things that we never thought would be normalized in our world, in our country, have become very normal to us. 
And so this is kind of where the Jews were 2,500 years ago. They adapted to the depravity of their day. And I want to give you a little bit of history because after 70 years of exile, there was a king, his name was Cyrus. Before the king that we're going to study this morning, Cyrus was in power, he was a Persian king, and he made a strategic political move, and he let exiles, the exiles from Judah, he allowed them to go back to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Jerusalem into Judah as long as they still claimed loyalty to the king. And so he lets them go back, and the Bible tells us that 50,000 Jewish people returned to Judah, and specifically to the areas of Jerusalem. 50,000 of them went back. But what we also know from history is historians tell us this, that nearly 10 times that many people, Jews, Israelites, 500,000 people actually decided to stay where they had acclimated to. They stayed in the, in, the, in the areas of Persia and Babylonia because it was just more comfortable. It was easier to acclimate than it was to like uproot and stick out and go back home to their homeland. So it was easier to adapt to society than it was to come out of it. And so lest we start feeling too comfortable in the madness of our world, I want to remind us that our citizenship is not in America. Our citizenship is not this place that we call earth. Our citizenship, our loyalty is in the kingdom of God. And Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us that. That we should be loyal to an empire that is heavenly. That we should be loyal to an empire of God whose rule will have no end. The people of God, the fact is, is that when the world gets nasty, when the world continues to decay, and the world falls further and further away from God and, and his ways and his, um, his plan for us, the world tends to, or Christians, I should say, we tend to kind of respond in two different ways. We either respond with desperation or assimilation. And neither of them are probably the best responses. Many Christians, in desperation, when they see what's going on in the world around us, they pull back. They simply like hole up and they, you know, they build bunkers and they just say, you know what, I'm going to keep everybody else at bay. I'm going to keep everybody else at distance, at a distance because I'm desperate to preserve what God has given me and my holiness. And then there are other Christians on the other side of it that say, well, if you can't beat them, just join them. So instead of desperation, they, they choose assimilation. They just kind of assimilate to culture. And neither of these ways is the way that we should respond. So the question is, as we get into Esther chapter 1, how should we respond as exiles? Because we are exiles on this earth. We are the outcasts. We are the ones that don't fit in necessarily with culture. So how should we respond in light of that? Well, Esther's going to give us a picture of what we should do and how we should live. And we know we're going to find out over the next several, over the next several weeks, we're going to find out that Esther was not perfect. Neither was her uncle Mordecai. Nobody was perfect. These weren't perfect characters, but they made the most of their moment. And in the process, they teach us how to live and how to approach life as exiles in our world today. And so let's look at Esther chapter 1. I wanna, we're going to read through this whole chapter this morning in chunks. Um, so we're going to get a lot of text. We're going to get a lot of scripture. But I want to break down some of the observations that I've made for how to live as exiles um, in a fallen society, in a fallen world, and how to see God working amongst us, even in the midst of debauchery. And so let's start in verse 1 of Esther chapter 1. We're going to read down for now through verse, cha- verse 9. It says this, Now in the days of um, Ahasuerus, I'm going to, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to warn you right now. 
I have struggled with this name all week long. I've consulted, I've consulted concordances. I've consulted Google. I've consulted pastors. I've talked through this in my head. I've said it a hundred times, a hashuaris. But every time I stop thinking about this name for 10 minutes, I forget how to pronounce it. And so it's a hashuaris. And I'm going to try to remember how to say it through this morning. Okay. So now in the days of a hashuaris, the Ahasuerus, who, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So this guy had power. His, his, his empire had, you know, it was expanded. It was spread out. 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were, were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Check this out. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And so here we see a description of this empire that was being built. So there's nearly 500,000 Jews that are still living spread amongst the Persian Empire and in Babylonia in particular. And these were people that belonged back in Jerusalem, that belonged back in Judah. In their homeland, they lived dispersed instead voluntarily as exiles. And they were under the rule of King Ahasuerus. And these verses explain to us the extravagance of this kingdom. And you might recognize the name Ahasuerus by the Greek name Xerxes. Now I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading through, why couldn't the English Standard Version just use Xerxes? It's just so much easier to say. But either way, you probably recognize that name Xerxes. The great historian Herodotus, he actually described Ahasuerus as someone who was bold. He was ambitious. He had a wicked temper, which we're going to see in just a few moments. He was petulant and he was self-indulgent in nearly every way. And that self-indulgence really comes out in chapter one that we're going to see throughout this chapter. So in the third year of his reign, he has just established his leadership. He has basically defeated all of his enemies, all of his challengers to the throne, and he is settled into his leadership as king of the most powerful empire in the world. Uh, And his empire is said to have spanned 3 million square miles. Okay. So just, just as a comparison, the United States of America is nearly 3 million square miles. So that's how large this kingdom was 2,500 years ago. And he throws a party. He throws a party to, to, to show off his power, to show off his wealth, to show off his greatness. And this party lasts for 180 days. As if that wasn't enough, 180 day party, six months of partying, as if that wasn't enough, he decides to throw a second party. 
That's seven days long. And he invites everybody in the city of Susa to be a part of this party. And there is carousing. There is wild dancing. There's gluttony. There's certainly drunkenness. There's misogyny. There's extravagant decorations. There's marble pillars, couches that were made of gold and silver. There's pavement of porphyry. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds really fancy and expensive. There's mother of pearls. There may have been father of pearls. I don't really know what that is either. There's precious stones. There's all these things that you can just imagine. They are extravagant. It is the best of the best. And they drank the very best of the king's wine out of golden goblets. This was the party of the century. And you can imagine the godlessness and the godless things that took place when the rich and the famous and the powerful gathered for six months and they drank to their heart's desire. And um, Ahasuerus, he literally held nothing back. If they wanted, his only edict was, you don't have to drink. But if you want to drink, you can get plastered for six months straight if that's what you want. You can have as much as you want. There's, there's no limits to what he would do. And so this is where we see hedonism at its worst. It's all pleasure. It's all self-indulgence. It's all about a king saying, look at me. Look at how powerful I am. Look at the God that I have become. It's all about Ahasuerus flaunting his extravagant lifestyle. And he was flexing in this moment. He's throwing his big old party. In fact, I, I, studied, I studied this out a little bit. Archaeologists have, have excavated relics of Ahasuerus, and these relics had inscriptions on them where the king actually referred to himself as the king of kings or the great king or the king of this great earth. This man had no regard for anyone or anything except for himself. King Ahasuerus was all about his empire. And think about this. He had to throw a party, two different parties, for 187 days in order to declare his glory. You think about this dueling empire. We serve the God of this universe, the creator of this universe. And ever since the moments all of those years ago where God spoke into existence, the heavens and the earth, that creation has been declaring his glory. God did not have to throw a party for himself. This is the difference between kingdoms. This is the difference between kings. This God that we serve is so much greater as a king. And so in this moment, while the world parties away, God is working a way. He's working his way. Now we may be surrounded in today's day and age, we may be surrounded by unholiness in our earthly empires, but God is certainly not derailed. God's plans will not be thwarted, Christians. God is not limited to moving only when this political party is in power. Only when that political party has the influence Man, if, if, if only this president got voted in instead of that president, if only this political party ran the, and controlled the Senate or controlled Congress, man, then everything would be fine and God can work through that. What this story is going to show us is that God is not affected by who is in power. God can do whatever he wants and he can work through whoever he wants in order to accomplish his will. And that should bring us hope because we see the providence of God in the midst of the darkness of our day. And we should not doubt his power and his providence even when the days get darker. Because God has proven to us through the story that he is still in control. So what many of us do is instead of trusting, we doubt. And we kind of retreat to a place of, of despair, thinking that, man, 
all is hopeless, all is futile. The world keeps getting darker. The world keeps getting worse. And it seems like God is more and more distant. And so it just seems like all is hopeless. And so we stop living as salt and light because I guess deep down, some of us, we don't believe that God really is in control, that God really can change this godless culture. But folks, God is still moving. In the midst of the unholiness of the day, the unholiness of Ahasuerus' empire, God was still on the move through a young woman who's going to come into our story in just a few verses. But God has a plan, and he wants to carry it out, and he wants to partner with his people. And Esther is going to be that partner in this story of how he is, she's going to show us how to live as exiles in the midst of unholy empires. So the second observation is this. God's purposes for exiles are not frustrated by empire failure. Let's look at verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1. It says this. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded um, Mahuman... Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, I love that name, Bigtha, uh, 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 Bigtha and uh, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, another really strong name, right? Carcass. Um, these are interesting names, but these are the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king uh, with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged. We talked about his petulance. We talked about his anger. We talked about his temperament. And his anger burned within him because his wife did not respond the way that he felt that she should. And this is really what we're going to see in the next couple of verses, several verses. We're going to see like uh, utter like leadership incompetence on display. And let me tell you, I can speak to a little bit of incompetence on display as a leader. Um, I went into full-time ministry when I was 21 years old, and I had no clue what I was doing. And I showed a lot of incompetence over those early years. I made some bad decisions, made some bad judgments. And by the grace of God, I never like, I never ruined anybody's life. I never injured anybody, but I made some bad mistakes that I had to pay for. I had a kid, I had a kid in a van ride. I'll share this story sometime down the road in full, but I had a kid in the van ride on the way home from camp that was getting car sick. And I just decided to ignore him, paid the price for that incompetence, um, forgot another kid at a restaurant and uh, went back to the church and found out that this young lady, she was probably about 15 at the time, in the, in the middle of the dark comes walking toward the church. And I realized in that moment, oh my goodness, I forgot her at the restaurant. This is not going to be a fun conversation with her parents. I also ran a van out of gasoline in the middle of the desert in Nevada. That was not necessarily a fun experience either. But I learned all of these hard lessons. I actually made some of these bad mistakes out of a lot of immaturity. Those were mistakes of immaturity. But what we're going to see from King Ahasuerus is that these were not mistakes of immaturity. They were mistakes of arrogance. There were mistakes of him wanting to prove how powerful he was and build his kingdom. And through his leadership, what we're going to find is that he showed a failure in several different areas. He shows a failure of self-control, shows a failure in decision-making, shows a failure in his marriage, in the community that he surrounds himself with. He also shows a failure in his legislation. I'm looking at that and I'm thinking about all that list of the the ways that he failed and the areas that he failed. And I thought to myself this week, this guy would have made a great modern day politician. You know what I'm saying? So where does all this mistake making, where does it all start? Where does it all begin? 
Well, it goes back to a booze fest and early, early in Esther chapter one. It's a booze fest. Think about how we approach drinking alcohol and decision making at the same time in today's day and age. Probably not a good, good decision to make critical life changing decisions when you're under the influence. Am I right? Amen. Don't make decisions when you're under the influence, when you're intoxicated. But that's not exactly how the Persians approached alcohol 2,500 years ago. They believed that if you imbibed spirits, that the more you drank, the greater the opportunity would be that you could actually get wise counsel from the spirits and, and make better decisions. And so these men were drinking and drinking and drinking until they couldn't drink anymore. And they start making decisions while they're intoxicated, believing that they're actually coming into contact with the spirit world and they're receiving counsel. And this is where Ahasuerus is completely drunk. He's completely wasted. And he starts making some bad decisions. He fails to control his inhibitions. And when, when he failed to, to control his inhibitions, he fails in his decision-making. And in his drunkenness, he summons his wife, a beautiful woman. Her name was Vashti. He summons for her to come and to flaunt her beauty in front of all of his guests. And he wants her to be the life of the party, the centerpiece of the party. He saw his wife not as a bride, not as a partner. He saw her as a trophy. And he wanted to show her off. Another really bad decision. And this guy is kind of a doofus, right? Like he just makes bad decision after bad decision. He starts compounding them. You've heard the phrase that sin begets sin. This is exactly what Ahasuerus is doing. His pride was completely out of control. He gets under the influence and then he starts making really bad decisions, compounding one with another worse one. So we know a little bit about Queen Vashti. Her name actually means that her Greek name actually means the best or it means the desired one. So she was the pride of the king. And we know that the king, King Ahasuerus, he had a harem. He had all kinds of women that he could choose from. He probably had multiple wives, but Vashti, no doubt, was his prized trophy. He was the favorite. She or she was the favorite. She was the most beautiful one. She was the one that he desired the most. Historians believe that when Ahasuerus um, summoned her to come and parade her beauty, that she was supposed to come with her headdress. Others believe that she was to come in front of all of the partiers and in front of all of the city and parade her beauty in only her headdress. There's not, there's not clarity on what Ahasuerus expected of her, but he made, uh, you know, basically a scandalous request of his wife. And the only thing that was more scandalous than that was the fact that she rejected his summons. That she said, nope, I'm not going to do that. She was a beautiful woman, but compliant she was not. Vashti had a mind of her own, and her husband couldn't control him. And in this moment, I can't help but think that God has a sense of humor. You know what I mean? Like, here's the man who claims to be a god. He claims to be the most powerful man on the planet. And he is, he is a leader among leaders, yet he can't lead in his own home. And I have to think to myself, God must have a sense of humor. Because as I turn to the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 2, it says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The, the nations rage and the, and the rulers of the nations say, we don't need God. We don't need his rules. We don't need his ways. Let's do our own thing. Let's cast this religious way and this God away from us. And this is what verse four says. He who sits in heaven's thrones laughs. 
the Lord holds them in derision. I can't, I can't help but imagine in this moment when Vashti uh, denies her king, denies her husband, that God must have been in heaven thinking to himself, yeah, you think you're in control. You think you're powerful. Let me remind you who is really writing history, who is really controlling history. And so leaders of empires, they love to dictate and manipulate and legislate like gods, but their power is nothing. And Ahasuerus, he failed in his leadership and he failed in his marriage. And then he fails even further. He fails to put the right people around him to make wise decisions. He surrounds himself with other power-hungry people, people that are arrogant themselves and only serve their own agendas. And maybe they're even yes-men, and all they want to do is get closer and closer to the king because they were, one of, they were some of the rare men, and we're going to read about them here in just a moment, but they were the rare few that actually had access to the king in person. And so they're trying to protect what they have built and what they have gained And these are weak leaders that try to legislate submission from women. I don't know about you men in the room, but years ago when I first got married, I tried to to enact or invoke an edict of submission to my wife. Fellas, there's there's some mistakes that you only make one time, am I right? Like you don't do that more than once. Like I realized the first time I told my wife she needed to submit to me, it did not go well for me. And so I learned that lesson the hard way. I didn't have to learn that multiple times. But at the time, I will admit, I was probably a weak leader. I was not strong enough to lead well my wife in our early 20s. But over the years, God had humbled me. And I saw my wife more as a partner than I did certainly as a trophy. And instead of demanding that she submit to me, we went through life together and we make decisions together and I don't lord it over her and I don't try to control her. We are just one moving in the same direction together. But here in this passage of scripture, we have some weak leaders that are leading through fear and manipulation. And their counsel was to was to create a law that forced all of the women of this nation, of this empire to submit to their husbands because of one woman who rebelled against her husband. And they were afraid that if Vashti could do this to King Ahasuerus, then other women would do this, like our wives, and we're leaders of this nation, then they will rebel against us, and then this will trickle down, and our nation will devolve out of control. So it all started with one man's leadership who couldn't lead his wife well. And let me remind us, man, let me speak to you for just a moment, because some of you have been married way longer than I have, maybe some of you maybe not married as long, but I think there's a lesson for all of us to lead our, li- our, our wives well, to submit to God's authority, to love them like Christ loved the church, to set a holy example for our brides, to chase after sin and to remove it from our lives, to become holy and like Christ every day, to wash our wives in the word, to pray over them, to lead them in humility and to partner with them. Folks, we're failing as a nation because we're failing in the home. Men are failing in their leadership in the home. In spite of all of this, that's bad news, right? But in spite of all of that, God's plans are still not frustrated. God is still on the throne. He still has not lost control. And he certainly hadn't lost control in the Persian Empire when it seemed like things were spiraling spiraling out of control. You know what that tells me in a practical note? It tells me that even though I'm flawed, even though I sometimes make unwise decisions, even though sometimes I fail as a leader of my wife, as a leader of my children, maybe even as a leader of the church, that his grace is sufficient, 
that his grace overcomes my mistakes, that he can forgive. I am flawed and I am prone to my own depravity and wander into that depravity. But God is still good and he is still faithful and he is still in control. His ways always win out. His empire will endure forever. Which leads to the third and the final observation from um, Esther chapter 1. God places exiles strategically to serve a greater empire. We have been placed strategically in our day and age, in our world, in our generation, in order to serve the empire of God. And the question that, that, that comes to my mind is, should there be any doubt the type of people that God uses to serve his purposes? We can go all the way back to a wanderer named Abraham who wandered through the wilderness to find a better land, a land that God would show him. We can move on to a slave like Joseph, to a national outcast like Moses, to a forgotten shepherd like David, to a cupbearer to the king named Nehemiah. And we see all of these men and all of these women throughout the history of scripture. And they have one thing in common, that they were in the right place at the right time in history for God to use them to do remarkable things for such a time as this. We're going to read that verse in just a couple of weeks. We're going to be reminded that for such a time as this, maybe we've been placed in this situation, in this circumstance for God to use us. And what we're going to find next week in particular is that it just so happens that there is a rising star in the Persian Empire. And her Greek name is Esther. And her her Hebrew name was actually Hadassah. And that Hebrew name means myrtle. And I I want to read a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 55 to you this morning. And I want to read this. And this is what it says. This is before the days of Esther. Isaiah said this, Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So God is sharing this verse to us that there's a myrtle that's going to arise and I'm going to rise it up. I'm going to sprout it up and it is going to be a sign to you that I will preserve you, that I will not forget you, that I have a lasting covenant with you. And that is such a wonderful promise to us, a wonderful reminder that a myrtle, a woman named Hadassah, a woman named Esther would rise up so that God could preserve his people. And I want to skip through, we're not going to have time to read the rest of Esther chapter 1, but I want to challenge you to read through that, and you're going to see their decision-making process in this unholy kingdom with fallen, uh, with fallen leaders that are flawed and this empire that is completely um, off the hinges. I want you to read through that and just kind of see what happens. And what you're going to find out is that it just so happens that a king threw a party. It just so happened that he needed a new queen. It just so happened that there was a Jewish girl who caught the affection of that king. And everyone in this story, from Haman to Mordecai and others that we're going to be introduced to in the weeks to come, everyone is exactly where God placed them in order to preserve his people, in order for his plan to be carried out and to be saved from the evil intents of failed leaders and empires. So, Um, Ahasuerus, he didn't know it, but his failed empire was actually working to, uh, I guess, uh, live out the plan or carry out the plan of God's holy empire. Esther at the time didn't know it, but her position of royalty would save her people from genocide. 
All of these things happened, and it just so happened that these events took place, but God knew exactly what he was doing. So my question to you this morning as we close out is, does anything just so happen? I mean, this is going to be evidence that there are no coincidences, that things don't just so happen, but God is constantly in work, and he is constantly at work in the minutia of the moment. There is no, no moment that is too minute. There is no servant that is too insignificant. And Esther is proof of this. This is just a, an average young lady who had the beauty that God needed to use to carry out his purposes. You know, someone once said, I read this this week in, uh, in my studies, someone once said, big doors swing on small hinges. You ever heard that phrase? Big doors swing on small hinges. Esther was a small hinge. But man, did she get used by God in some amazing ways. Each and every one of us, I think, is as we compare ourselves to the world around us and all that God is doing, we would say, man, I'm just a tiny little hinge. But big doors can swing on small hinges. God can use each and every one of us in some major ways. Should there be any doubt after reading the story that God can use your situation? Should we really question if God is working behind the scenes of our circumstance? Trust him even when you can't see him because he's working out the rest of the story. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father.